Well, church, if you could turn with me to First uh, Peter chapter five. This is our last sermon in our First Peter series. And so as we turn there, to offer up this prayer as we conclude uh, this study of First Peter, by God's grace, perhaps we'll study it again. Lord, we thank you for your word. As simple as that sounds, where would we be without it? We are fallen, we are sinful, we are prone to chase our own desires, and we are often quite selfish. If we had to design worship from the ground up, it would not take the form of the cross, and it would not be directed heavenward, but it would inevitably look like us. It would look earthly, and it would be focused inward. Lord, because of your word, we have a norming norm. We have a standard. We have a target. We have something from which to begin and something on which to end. So we thank you for that. We do not worship this text, these 66 books that you've given us. We worship you. And so, Lord, allow us, through your Holy Spirit, to know you more. As we've learned and heard repeatedly as we've studied 1 Peter, allow us to suffer well. And as we do both of these things, enable us, encourage us to love one another. We ask all this in the precious name of your Son. Amen. So, once more, this is a letter. 1 Peter is a letter. And that sounds sometimes simple to think of the epistles as letters. And in fact, even that kind of biblical language of calling it the epistle of 1 Peter, the epistle to the Romans, it kind of adds this elevated air to it. And in doing so, it sometimes removes from our reading of it or our study of it the fact that this is a letter from one man to either a group of people, a group of groups of people, as is the case of 1 Peter, or even an individual like we see in Titus or Philemon. But we understand that this is a personal letter. And as we come to this morning's text, we are actually coming to the conclusion, the benediction, if you will, of 1 Peter to his audience. And in it, we get a few important doctrinal notes, but it is woven through the context of a personal goodbye. It is the conclusion of a letter. Now, these days, there's a, a lot of time, energy, and effort that is given in corporate life to how you sign off on a, a letter. Do you write sincerely? That's quite significant if you are just asking somebody for a bit of information. Do you not write anything? Maybe just put your name at the bottom of it. That might be a little bit too personal. And so consequently, we've come up with all of these quaint little phrases. Yours truly. Cheers. Best regards right beside you, and they continue to go on and on and on. And what's the intent of that? The intent of these, these little, these little uh, 
snippets of, of, of benediction or these, these farewells in these letters is, is, honestly, it's to bring it to a conclusion and also to remind you who sent this. Now, again, this, this is something that we understand because when we open a letter, we often see who it's from. When we open an email, emails, children, are like, are like letters, only digital, but ask your parents about that. We, we know who we're getting it from, but we often conclude it reminding people who it's from and maybe with a few last-minute things. You can remember when you wrote letters more than you wrote emails, you weren't able to simply mouse back up to the body of the email and add one little bit of information. You put that little PS, that postscript, on the bottom and adding a few last pertinent bits of information, maybe even a little XOXO if you're writing to somebody who deserves that. And so not to, to bring Scripture down to that level of quaint little goodbyes and postscripts and X's and O's, but we have to remember that what we have just studied for the last few months is indeed a letter. It is a letter that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is a letter written by one of Jesus' apostles, but it is still a letter. And our granular study of this, going not only verse by verse, but oftentimes word for word, sometimes obscures the fact that this is a man who, in God's plan and in God's will and in his own desires, has a deep burden for a particular group of people, a group of people who are his brothers and sisters in the faith, a group of people that he is encouraging to walk with Christ and walk with him as he does so. And so as we, as we conclude the study of 1 Peter, this is the part of the text that we get to, the last three verses. So read with me 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 12. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So, verse 12 says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Now, oftentimes, the apostles weren't the ones delivering the letters. In fact, they weren't the ones delivering the letters. And so we don't know exactly what's happening here. We don't know if Silvanus was the one delivering the letter or if Silvanus was the one who actually wrote the letter for Peter. We have instances in other epistles where Paul has a, here's your fancy $5 word for the day, amanuensis. It's basically a, a theology word for secretary. Somebody who wrote the letter for them. There's other places where Paul says, this is by my own hand. Now, does this change the, the issue of inspiration? If Peter dictates to somebody else what to write, not one bit, because what is Peter dictating? Peter is dictating what the Holy Spirit has inspired him to give. So whether it be by Peter's hand or by Silvanus's hand, or this is Peter's hand, but it's delivered by Silvanus, what's indicated here and what's important to remember is that God uses means. This letter was just as powerful coming from Peter's hand or from Silvanus's hand. This letter was just as powerful if it was coming from Peter to the audience or if Silvanus was the man who delivered it. And so it, it, it communicates two things to us. Again, one, God uses means. Secondly, 
that even the apostles were surrounded by brothers and sisters that they relied upon, that they needed. None of us is a super apostle. The apostles themselves were not super apostles. Paul actually uses that term to indicate his humility and indicate that he needed others and that he needed Christ. And so Silvanus, this individual that we know very little about, was an essential piece that God used and that Peter relied upon to get the letter to where we have it today, but to get it to the original audience. And he was a faithful brother regarded by Peter. We could talk about that. There's so many things that come to mind. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to be regarded as a faithful brother by the Apostle Peter? Somebody who knew Christ, who walked with Christ, to turn around and say, I rely on this guy. He has faith. This woman has been a wonderful service to me. Her faith is a testimony. Peter, the one who with the lowest of lows in, in denying Christ, and then the highest of highs about being thrice confirmed by Christ as for his resurrection, regards Silvanus as his faithful brother. It's a wonderful picture of, again, the, in, in, the interdependent nature of the church and the people who come together to accomplish God's will. And so he says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Some of your translations might say, I have earnestly witnessed to you that this is the true grace of God. And I think we can say that, looking back on these previous five chapters, that Peter has been earnestly witnessing, that he has exhorted and declared the things of God. These have not been easy things. And you and I both know how difficult it may be to share things that are not easy to share. He, we'll talk about it here in a moment, but Peter has had to write to these, this church that they are suffering and they need to do it well. That's not an easy message to share with somebody. You're going through something hard. Do a good job of that. That might come across as, as, as kind of kicking somebody where they're down. That may, be, that may come across as, as uh, discounting their pain or their difficulty. But Peter, in the Spirit, has come to this church, has written to these people, saying, you are going through something difficult. Don't do it poorly. He has earnestly witnessed. He has exhorted and declared it's not easy to explain things like that, to, to phrase them in the right way so as to not give undue offense. But Peter has been able to do that. And why does he do that? He says that he has written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? Now, God's grace is so unfathomable. God's grace is so significant God's grace is so expansive that we would not have the time this morning and we would not have the attention span to go through the significance of God's grace and how it permeates and reaches into everything that we know and everything that we understand, not just about salvation, but about life. God's very grace is what enables you and I to enjoy that sunshine, whether we know God or not. God's very grace is what enables us to enjoy brotherhood and sisterhood and friendship, 
whether we know God or not. God's grace is so much more than what we say before we sit down to eat. God's grace is so much more than that moment when we come to know him as our Lord and Savior. But God's grace is this permeating truth of the goodness that we receive. Going back to the catechism question, the fact that we can enjoy everything from the minerals in the ground to the stars in the sky, probably the very same chemical components in each one, but we're able to enjoy them in unique and different ways, whether we know him or not, is wholly dependent on his grace, receiving something that we don't deserve. But the grace of this letter exhorting and declaring this is the true grace of God, what Peter is talking about, this true grace that he is specifically referencing in this text, is tied to what he has communicated in this letter. And although I'm, I'm sure that if given time that I could create a different, maybe longer or more concise outline, and you would certainly come up with something different, or we could go through the different commentaries that faithfully interpret the, the epistle of 1 Peter, that we could come up with many different explanations of the different thrusts and purposes for this epistle. The three that I want to focus on briefly as we think back through our study of it, as Peter is bringing this letter to a close, are these. Know God, suffer well, and love one another. This letter, I think we can fairly say, has encouraged us, has, has exhorted and declared that we are to know God that we are to suffer well, and that we are to love one another. And these three things are tied together. These weren't three separate aspects. These are three things that are interwoven, and all three of them are necessary in and amongst each other. To suffer well, you must know God. To love one another, you have to suffer well. And to, and to love one another, you also must know God. So without going back through the entire epistle, although there wouldn't be a problem in doing that, and I, I would encourage you, I would, to, to use Peter's words, um, I would exhort and declare to you that it's worthwhile reading the entire epistle in one sitting. You can probably knock it out in a long commercial break, but that makes it sound minimalized. So uh, let's take the time to do it. It's five short chapters. We have been encouraged we have been earnestly witnessed by Peter to know God. He says in chapter 1 that though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you have not seen him, you love him. That idea of faith is so incredibly important for us to grasp. That knowing God is knowing him by faith. And as we know him by faith, we actually know him in an intimate way that, as Peter wrote here, results in, re in rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We know God, Peter says in first, in, again in chapter 1, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Church, that's what we would call high Christology. It is understanding in Jesus an, an important 
significant way. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that this is Jesus existing in eternity past as the triune God, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Do we know this Jesus? This is an essential thing to understand. Many heresies, and going back to chapter 1 when we studied this, we made a point to, to make it clear that any other conception of Christ falls woefully short of the biblical standard of who he declared himself to be, and the rest of the entirety of the biblical testimony says that he is. If we reject the fact that Jesus existed in eternity past, if we reject the fact that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we are rejecting Jesus. You may have a cross around your neck, you may sing songs, and you may praise someone, but if you neglect to acknowledge what is made abundantly clear, not only in this text, but in other texts, that Jesus Christ was made incarnate, but he existed eternally past and will exist eternally future, then you're worshiping a different God. This was given to us, again, in the first chapter, establishing that if your foundation is on something other than this, then it's on shifting sand. If your foundation is on another God, another Jesus, then you aren't going to suffer well because you're worshiping something contrived. You're worshiping something temporal. You're worshiping something that is insufficient to meet your needs. So we begin to see that Peter was making this argument that we know God and we know exactly who he is because if we are building our foundation on something other than the one true revealed sovereign God, then we will not be able to endure good days, let alone bad days. We know God. He wrote in, in chapter 2, and we, we talked about this, that as we come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. As we know God, we know ourselves. It is, it is a common thing as you approach uh, any literature that has been composed, most creeds, most confessions, most documents that have been put together over the last 2,000 years that stand in the faithful witness of what the church has delivered by this, the apostles and to the saints, that we don't get to anthropology, understanding mankind, before we get through theology, knowing who God is. And that is precisely what's being talked about here in verse 2. We don't know ourselves, living stones, being built up as a spiritual house. We don't know what that means without first understanding who our cornerstone is. We don't know who we are, the pattern that we take, unless we first understand the one who forms the pattern, the one who establishes the foundation. We cannot know ourselves unless we know the one who made us. We cannot know our purpose unless we know the one through whom purpose has been defined. And that might sound simple. That might even verge on almost sounding kind of fluffy. But that is the reality of, again, another $5 word, epistemology of understanding what we know. We only know what we know because we know God. He is the foundation, again, not just for salvation, but for life. We could come through countless other examples that we encounter in 1 Peter 
of how we are commanded and called and earnestly witnessed by Peter to know God. And I think that he's done a good job, even in just this short, as he says, this brief letter, to help us understand what we need to know about God. And not just what we need to know about God, who we need to know. And before we go on, I want to make that incredibly clear. For Peter, his faith was not only by faith, it was also by sight. Peter understood that faith in Christ was faith not just in a concept. It was faith in a person. A man he lived with and walked with and ministered alongside. A man who he, who, who he betrayed and denied and a man who forgave him. A man who revealed to him these great things. A man who said to him one of the most amazing things that any human being has ever been spoken to. That you are Peter and on this confession, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter knew intimately, relationally, who Jesus was. We have to have that same relationship by faith. We could not have a hug. We could not sit down and share fish with Jesus. We cannot have those same experiences that Peter had. But we are called to that same relationship by faith. And as we'll take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, we anticipate when we'll be able to have those experiences that Peter had, but for us it's future. But that is the crux of the relationship that we are called into, a personal relationship with Jesus not a relationship that stops as it goes from your head down to your mouth, but one that also extends down to your heart, to your soul, to your very being. Inasmuch as you have a personal relationship, not only a knowledge or head-based relationship with your wife or with your husband or with your children or with your parents or with your friends, we are called to have that personal relationship with Christ. That is how Scripture, that is how 1 Peter defines knowing God. So the message is that we know God, it's also that we suffer well. In fact, this has probably been the most uh, blatant message that we get from 1 Peter. We see that in, in, in chapter 2 where Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Sometimes suffering means putting up with stuff. Sometimes suffering simply means living in a system and a world where it feels like the walls are closing in, where it's impossible to open the news app on your phone or turn on the TV or pick up a newspaper and not feel like you are being surrounded by things that have not just oppression, but abject animosity towards what you believe and everything that you hold dear. And often, as is the case, as we'll even see here in a moment as Peter kind of wraps up his letter, sometimes that oppression, sometimes that animosity, sometimes those objections come from those in the civil sphere who are supposed to be protecting us. Now, I don't want to make it sound like we are living in a day and age where we're on the edge of martyrdom because I don't think that's true by God's grace. But we have brothers and sisters today who are, 
who those who God has ordained bear the sword for the protection of the good and the punishment of evil have actually inverted that and are calling good evil and evil good and are using their power to oppress and subject those who are following Christ. Yet Peter commands us to suffer well. This is the will of God, he says, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's talking not just about those who are in the public square, but by even those who govern the public square. And he goes on to say in chapter 4 that with respect to this sin, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We suffer well knowing that our suffering doesn't require that we enact or, or go out of our way to commit some sort of act of vengeance. We are not the arbiters of justice. God is the arbiter of justice. So whether it be someone close to us in our personal life or someone far away in Washington, D.C., or anywhere in between, we are commanded to wait on God for justice. We are commanded to suffer difficulties when we are being maligned. We are commanded to suffer well in those situations knowing that God is the one who will ultimately arbitrate on our behalf. If Christ is mediating on our behalf today, we can have confidence that he will continue to do so and that he will do so ultimately when he returns. We are commanded to suffer well, whether that suffering is locally or whether it is at a global scale. He also says in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This was a difficult passage to preach a few, a few weeks ago. To, to tell you and to tell myself and to be reminded that when something bad happens, when we suffer, that our response ought to be, in one sense, this is not good, and in another sense, this is the way things are. To, to live in this tension between this is the way things are, but this is not the way they ought to be. But not to try to mold things and twist reality and reshape the way that things are into the way that we want them to be, but to understand that God has a plan and a process through and even in spite of, even using our suffering. That's a hard pill to swallow, church. That we, when we, are, when we have fiery trials, when we have difficulties that may sear our souls and even cause us physical pain because of the emotional toil that it takes on us, that we have been commanded by inspired Holy Scripture to not be surprised. That in the economy of this world, in this age, in these last days, that this is something that is to be expected. But by not being surprised, by understanding that this is something that we have been warned of, that we can be proactive when these things happen. That our first impulse isn't to pout, but to pray. That our first impulse isn't, again, to go out and to exact revenge, but it is to wait on the Lord. That our first impulse isn't to say, woe is me, but our first impulse is to say, how great is our God. These are our hard truths. 
These are truths that are difficult to say, but they're even more difficult to put into practice. But this is what suffering well looks like. This is what suffering well looks like because, again, this is suffering that is built upon knowing God. This is suffering that is built upon knowing Christ. And if we know Christ, then we know the cost that he paid to be on the cross. We understand his suffering, and every one of our earthly sufferings is bathed in that cross-shaped shadow that he casts upon our lives, on our good days and our bad days. And our difficulty, when, when covered in that cross, it has a complete new complexity and complexion. And we understand what we go through, not on an island, not compared to our neighbor, not compared to our family, but compared to Christ. And so we're not surprised. And we suffer well, knowing that Christ suffered well. We look at him. We don't look at ourselves. We don't look at others. We look at Jesus, and we keep our eyes firmly focused on him, having taken up our cross to follow him. We know God. We suffer well. And then we love one another. I think we understand the progression here. Once we know God, we know how to suffer. But we don't suffer alone. Although Christ is our pattern for understanding suffering, our pattern for suffering is not by ourselves. Our, path, our pathway through suffering is to be with one another. This is a letter that is written to a church, and so it is filled with the understanding that there is going to be communal life that is happening. The difficulty that Peter is writing about is not individualistic difficulty that is, that is being endured by single people in a congregation. It is a collective suffering, a collective group of trials that although it may manifest in different ways, shape, or forms in different individuals, in different families, in different segments of the community based on either male or female, based upon where socioeconomic status, based upon ethnicity, based upon age, based upon family situation, that they are not meant to be endured in those silos of demographics. They are meant to be endured together. And just one quick thing, notice how counter-cultural that is. Notice how different that is to our world today. The marginalized are being re-ghettoed in our culture and are, said that, and are, are being told that that is how they overcome difficulty, by dealing with it on your own. You are of this ethnicity. You are of this socioeconomic class. You are of this age. You should have your own space where you can figure stuff out on your own. God's plan is not segregation. God's plan is integration. God's plan is that we come together, and Peter inevitably wrote about this, as we talked about earlier, Jews and Gentiles, those who have positions of authority, those who are more subservient based on their current status, men and women, children, older, younger, all together for God's glory, working out the suffering that they are enduring collectively. He says in chapter 1, Having purified your souls by obedience for the truth, by a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That is what our love ought to look like. Not a selfish love, but a pure love. Because once you were not a people, it says in chapter 2, but now you are a people. 
once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because of the mercy shown to us by God, we are a people. This room, this church, Christ's covenant is a people by God, not by our choice. You may say, well, I chose to drove here this morning. But what happens in our communion, what happens in our community is greater than sitting in chairs. It's greater than reading the same words off of a screen or even partaking in the same tasty desserts downstairs. What is happening here is that we have been brought together. And this is something that we'll inevitably touch on in coming weeks as we talk about membership. But we, are, we, we have been brought together by Christ. We have been brought together as a people for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to suffer alongside one another when the, the, the sinful plight of this world does have its day. But we suffer well with another knowing that God will ultimately win the war. In chapter 3, it says that all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is the mentality that we come into this church with. This is the mentality that we come into worship with. This is the mentality that we come into community with. Unity of mind. We know God, and we are built upon that same foundation. We don't come with different foundations that we rotate through based upon some sort of four-week schedule. We have unity of mind based upon the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, based upon the truths of Scripture. We have sympathy, though, understanding that although we may know that, on a given day, our faith may be weak. And so we sympathize with our brother or sister who may be having a day of weak faith or a season of weak faith because we have been there also. And so out of brotherly love, we come alongside them, encouraging them, not saying, you can do it, buck up, kiddo, but by saying, go back to God's words and his promises. Look back at your baptism. Remember the sign and seal of the blessings that were conferred upon you in this beautiful sacrament. Look at that. Remember, remember taking the Lord's Supper and the nourishment, the spiritual benefits that we receive of doing this together, not from the merits of the elements themselves, but by the obedience of what Christ has done and given us. Tender hearts and humble minds as we understand and know God together and as we suffer together. This is, as Peter writes, the true grace of God. He continues on in verse 12 saying, stand firm in it. Stand firm in this. We need to have the solid rock of the word and his grace beneath our feet. This is what we stand firm in. We are being sold so many other things that we can stand firm in. The promise of self-help. The promise of the culture the promise of physical health, the promise of politics, all of these things are being sold to us as other foundations. Every one of these things has value in one way, shape, or form, but they are not foundational. They are not bedrock. They are something that will rot and that will decay. And so if the entire edifice of your life or the entire edifice of your family or of your church is built upon these things as foundations, 
then it is not that different than how Christ ends the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew when he talks about the wise man building his house on the rock and the foolish man building his house on the what, children? Sand. Yes. What this world has to offer is shifting sand. What is popular today is not what was popular 100 years ago, and I guarantee you, I'm not a betting man, but 100 years ago, in the future, what is popular today will be seen as passe and will be a joke in the history books. We stand firm in the grace and the truth that is given to us by Christ. We are not ashamed by it. Because remember, we talked about last week, this is the very thing by which we are being restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established by God's grace. So we are not ashamed in it. If the world is building an amazing-looking building on shifting sand, and compared to that, what we are standing on is a rickety shack, but it is built on the foundation and the bedrock of Christ's teaching, we cannot be ashamed that our shingles are a little bit askew and that our front door has a hole in it. Because the foundation is what matters. It is, as they say, something that has good bones. Because again, it is the living stones built off the cornerstone that is Christ. We stand firm in it. We're not halfway into it. You can say that committing to Jesus and blank is not committing to Jesus. To stand firm in something means to plan two feet in on it. Not hedging our bets on one other thing, but two feet on the same thing. That is truly being committed. It is fully moving in one direction. Committing to Jesus and something is not committing to Jesus. There are plenty of things that we commit to within the context of committing to Christ. We commit to our spouse. We commit to our family. We commit to our church. We commit to our community. But we do those things under the umbrella of and on the foundation of Christ. We stand firm in him. And we stand firm regardless of what is going on. It said in chapter 1, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We stand firm in the grace of God knowing these things are true regardless of what is going on. As real, as significant, as tangible, and sometimes as blinding as our current day may be, can we say with confidence that it is imperishable? Can we say that it's undefiled? If we were a church that said amen, we'd probably work that in there somehow. Can we say that's unfading? None of those things are indicative of today, of our culture, of our situation, because they've not been true of anything else that has come before us. But God's word is something we can stand firm in, knowing it'll be here tomorrow. It's endured these 2,000 years, and if the Lord decides to tarry for 2,000 more, it will be the same, because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The last two verses are, are brief, but let's touch on them. Peter writes, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Babylon is used countless times in Scripture as kind of the code word of the enemy people of God. 
Babylon is, is pictured not only as the, the real Babylon in the Old Testament, but also the Babylon, Babylon not existing in the, the time period of, of that Peter is writing, as the picture of the enemy state that is antagonistic towards the people of God. That's why Babylon features so richly in Revelation. And here, in, in Peter's epistle, it most likely is Rome. And so when Peter says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, he's not talking about his wife and him who are living in Babylon. He is, he is more, most likely writing about the church in Rome who is likewise chosen, like the church that he's writing to, who is, is anthropomorphized as a woman. This is often the way that we see churches being talked about, her and she, and in Scripture. That the church in Rome also sends you greetings. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that we suffer knowing that our brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring the same things. We have a letter written to the church in Rome from the Apostle Paul so we understand what their suffering was, what their hardship was, what they were going through. History shows us what would befall the church at Rome before many of the other outlying churches. And so here you have one church sending their greetings through Peter to another church. And then we have Mark. Mark is Peter's companion. Mark was Paul's companion at the time. Mark has his name on a book of the Bible. And many people say that this is one more example that Peter considers Mark as his son, his son in the faith, that the gospel of Mark has a strong Petrine or Peter-based origin, that Mark received his story of Jesus from Peter, that Mark has this strong relationship with Peter. So once more, as we started, Silvanus and Mark, or Peter had this close relationship. Mark and Peter had this close relationship. The apostles were not such that they could exist on their own. They needed others. No matter who you are, no matter who I am, we need others. Others that we have intimate relationships like Peter and Mark, and others that we know are going through the same things, that are co-belligerents, maybe locally, but certainly globally, for the work of Jesus. We should have people that are close to us, and we should also have churches that we pray for and that we are close to. Verse 14 is the conclusion. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Well, do you want to have this verse uh, explained? All it is is, is a cultural farewell and a cultural greeting. It's not our culture, just to be clear. It might be your culture. It's not our culture. And all this was, was it was Peter reminding them about true Christian fellowship. It's true Christian greeting. It's a true Christian farewell that, that there is not some sort of stoic coldness in the church. What do we often do? Firm handshakes, hugs, you know, determine who is on which side of the aisle so that you don't have an awkward moment. But we do that because it is true fellowship. For them, it was with a kiss. That happens in other cultures today still. But what this means, after, after everything that we just talked about, after everything that was written in the, book, in the book of 1 Peter, after knowing God, suffering well, loving one another means that we don't let the fight take away from the festivity. We don't let the difficulty take away from the, the joy. We don't take everything that we uh, endure and we, we allow that to take away from the fellowship and the love that we have for one another. 
We greet one another with a holy kiss, with the kiss of love. We don't let the fight take away from the festivity. And lastly, the second half of verse 14, Peter concludes, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's a simple benediction, but it's a promise for those who know Jesus. It is not may, maybe peace. It is not hopefully peace. It is peace to all of you who are in Christ. And there is peace in Christ. There's a promise of peace for those who know Jesus. There is peace in knowing God through Christ. It's, it, it's a peace that, that goes beyond knowing, uh, knowing God in a way that it emanates from ourselves, in a feeling that we get, in going with the crowd. It is a peace that is, that is rooted in the true Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world, manifest in these last days, crucified on a cross, buried, but raised again, and now ascended at the right hand of the Father. It is, it is peace in knowing God through that true Jesus who existed in space and time. There's peace as we suffer well in Christ. This is the hardest one once more, but this is kind of the crux and the, and, and the heart of the gospel, or excuse me, of the epistle of First Peter, is that there's peace even in difficulty, as it is written elsewhere, the peace that passes understanding, because we know that suffering has purpose. We know that suffering has an ultimate end. We know that those who cause suffering will receive their just deserts, either in punishment or that, they have res- that, that punishment has been paid on the cross by Christ. So we understand that all suffering has a purpose. We might not know what that is, but we can have the peace that God is not doing anything aimless in this universe let alone in the lives of those he has saved. And we have peace that comes from loving one another in Christ. This is maybe the most pertinent and present example of this church. Do you have peace today? Does coming into this place give you peace? Does coming in into, and hearing God's word and, and, and reading God's word together and singing to the sovereign creator sustainer and redeemer of the universe bring you peace do you have peace downstairs when we share a cup of coffee and some snacks do you have peace during the week when you bump into someone and it's a smile and a handshake do you have peace when we have table fellowship over a meal do you have peace when you know that your brothers and sisters in christ are lifting up your needs and concerns in prayer i hope so This is a peace that is promised to you. This is a peace that is right there for you to receive. And it's a peace that starts with knowing God. It's a peace that endures through loving, suffering well. And a peace that manifests so frequently. Thank you, Lord, in loving one another in Christ. Will you pray with me? As the team comes up to lead us in our last song, and we'll come up and receive the elements, consider these words. 
all the way back in our first chapter of Peter as our prayer. Blessed be you, God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to your great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for us, who are protected by your power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, Lord, we greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials. So that the proof of our faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of your, your Son, Jesus Christ. And although we have not seen him, we love him. And though we do not see him now, but believe in him, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. We thank you. We thank you for this. We thank you for him. We thank you for your word. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.